This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. In 2021, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, the 26th Conference of the Parties, also known as COP26, is being held in Glasgow, Scotland between October 31st and November 12th. Leaders from around the world are meeting to coordinate policies to address the dangers of climate change. But policy choices are being largely based on the scientific findings compiled in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Reports, most recently released in August. This report was characterized by many leaders, such as UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, as a quote, code red for humanity, going on to say that the alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable. Greenhouse gas emissions are choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk. But does the newest IPCC report actually support such a dire outlook? Or have political leaders, possibly motivated by a desire to catalyze action on climate policy, badly mischaracterized the IPCC's report findings and in so doing, damaged their public credibility and the prospects for productive climate policy? My guest today is Roger Pilkey, Jr., Professor of the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Before joining the University of Colorado faculty, he was a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Professor Pilkey is the author of eight books, has testified on climate science before Congress, and has contributed articles on climate to the Financial Times and other news outlets. Professor Pilkey's work focuses on how science and public policy interact. Professor Pilkey will share with us the findings of the most recent IPCC report and discuss in what ways it has diverged from its own earlier predictions. We will also describe the widening gap between scientific observations and the dire predictions made by many political leaders. The theme of Professor Pilkey's recent work is that effective climate policy rests on confidence in the integrity of the climate science community. For that reason, science and scientists must not become politicized and climate policy leaders must adjust their rhetoric to match the reality of newer climate observations. When I return, I'll be joined by University of Colorado professor, Roger Pilkey, Jr. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Silvaggi, and I'm now joined by the University of Colorado at Boulder, Professor Roger Pilkey, Jr. Welcome to Hubwonk, Roger. Thanks, Joe. Good to be here. All right. Well, uh, this is a very timely conversation. Uh, this week, 30,000 people, including uh, uh, many world leaders, are meeting in Glasgow uh, to discuss global policy steps to address climate change. I want to talk about the most recent scientific observations on climate change, uh, the data that undergird the decisions uh, at this time. But before we uh, dive into uh, the science, uh, I want to I want to talk about how you came to climate science. You've written eight books. You've testified before Congress. You've written in articles in Financial Times. You have a fantastic Substack account talking about climate. Uh, but what what drew you to climate science uh, back in the day? Yeah, I guess it's uh, I guess it's in my DNA. Um, my father is one of the uh, leading atmospheric scientists of his generation, uh, and he uh, pioneered three dimensional numerical modeling of the atmosphere. And so I grew up you know, hearing a lot about atmospheric science and climate. Um, I went into the policy direction. And when I uh, did my PhD in the early 1990s, I was looking for a really hard policy evaluation topic. And the topic I picked, which was very niche and um, esoteric at the time, was how well does climate science relate to climate policy? 
and um, really have studied the issue on and off in different dimensions uh, for almost 30 years. I guess your, your goal was to ensure that the science uh, informs policy and uh, they're all on the same uh, song sheet, that there's uh, not a big difference between what the uh, science uh, indicates and what policy uh, uh, makers are using. Yeah, we want, we want that uh, relationship to work well in two dimensions. One is, one is we want science to inform policy, of course, but we also want to make sure that politics doesn't corrupt or, or uh, under, undermine the integrity of science as well. So we want them integrated, uh, not separated, but how to do that can be often tricky, particularly on highly contentious topics. That leads me to my next question, which is uh, you've seen science, uh, climate science uh, progress over 30 years, uh, and you've said it's it's gone from a, a, a lively uh, disagreement amongst scientists, which is natural. That's the nature of science. Uh, to um, moving more to the front pages of news and political journals. Um, I don't know if uh, you would uh, agree with me, but I, I read that um, it was somewhere around 2008, 2009, you saw an inflection point from where uh, we were talking pure science and, and uh, lively debate on, on scenarios to something a little bit different. Can you describe to our listeners what you saw in 2008, 2009 as a, as a shift? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that to say is that the, the core findings of climate science um, have been remarkably strong and consistent um, since at least the 1980s when the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was first created, um, that humans affect the climate system. Um, those effects can cause serious risks, and we should definitely take some steps to do something about it. That hasn't really changed over time. Um, what has changed is how that science gets overlaid on, on, on politics, policy, the media, and the public debate. And really, the, the shift that I experienced and saw in this issue um, was more around 2006. It coincided with when Al Gore's movie came out, An Inconvenient Truth, um, and the idea that in order to, to gain traction on the climate issue with the public, um, advocates would have to bring it home to people. That means to, to make it relevant to their daily lives. And the way that, that that was done was to associate extreme events, and really every extreme event, uh, hurricane, tornadoes, floods, um, with climate change to try to to instill in the public mind that that's what climate change is. It's it's extremes, um, very you know, media friendly images of, of disasters and hurricanes, um, and that became uh, much more a focus in the years since about 2006, 2007, um, and generally motivated by uh, a coordinated effort by by funders and advocacy groups to to bring climate to the public. So the public is an expert in science, maybe not expert in data analysis, but they they know the weather. Uh, they uh, see it every day around the world. Uh, so that brought it home to the uh, ordinary citizen. Climate change is real and it's causing, uh, uh, so the inference goes, uh, climate change is causing uh, severe weather events. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, the, the public and policymakers have always been well out in front of the where the science is on that topic, very, very ready to accept that this or that event was caused by, by, by greenhouse gas emissions or, or climate change. Um, even when the science was more nuanced and, and, you know, obviously complex than that simple formulation. Um, so it, it, it has not been a difficult argument to make in the public's eye. It's just that sometimes the science isn't always there to back that up. So let's take a step back and talk about the science. Uh, we're, uh, as I say, the world leaders are meeting for the COP26 um, meeting in Glasgow. Um, it, it's odd to me that uh, they're using the IPCC's um, most recent data as support for what I, you know, many are calling code red for planet Earth or for mankind. 
Um, but in reading your uh, uh, Substack and your articles on the issue, you've read the same report. It's 3,000 long, pages long. I'll admit I have not read it, um, but you characterized uh, the most recent IPCC uh, report as having fundamentally a good message, one that is uh, uh, trending more positive rather than uh, indicating uh, you know, the, the, the earth is doomed. Say more about that difference. Yeah, so so the way that the, the IPCC works and, and climate science generally is uh, we generate scenarios of the future. Um, the future is an uncertain place and we, we, we can't predict very well what's going to happen in five years, 10 years. So we have a wide range of scenarios to characterize plausible futures um, and then explore policy options, climate impacts, economic outcomes within that set of scenarios. And the biggest change really in the, the, the thinking about scenarios over the last 20 years uh, is that the most extreme scenarios, and by extreme, I mean uh, that the world is going to burn all of the coal that we can find to, to generate uh, not just electricity, but all of our uh, energy consumption. Um, we're going to take coal and we're going to turn it into liquids, and put it into our car. Um, those scenarios that, that once were thought where we were headed are now pretty much off the table um, as plausible futures. Um, so, so where the world is headed is, is much less apocalyptic than was thought only six or seven years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that, that reducing fossil fuel use or getting to net zero carbon dioxide is any easier. It's a huge, enormous challenge. Uh, but it does say that uh, we have a future that's, that's a lot less scary than maybe we thought before, even as the rhetoric goes in a different direction. I want to take a step back and talk about the weather phenomena. Uh, again, we're equating uh, or leaders that are, as you say, out in front of the science, uh, equating global warming with weather. Uh, and in particular, again, this is, uh, I think it was the World Health Organization characterized global warming as the single greatest threat facing humanity. Pretty bold statement. There's lots of threats and this is the worst. Um, if we accept that the world has been warming, I think uh, uh, our listeners may all accept that, at least for the last half, uh, 150 years, has this global warming uh, equated to an increase in deaths attributed to climate? In other words, a, a, is a warmer world more dangerous for the average human? So this is an exceedingly difficult signal to tease out um, because it's not just the climate that changes. It's, it's how we live on planet Earth, where we live, how we build, um, the, the procedures we have for evacuation when there's an emergency. Um, one of the most remarkable and, and, and underappreciated science technical policy success stories of the last century is the incredible drop in vulnerability of humans to extreme weather phenomena. Um, vulnerability has dropped something like 99.75% in, in a century. Um, it was not uncommon in the 1920s for millions of people to die in a single year due to extreme weather uh, phenomena. Uh, now, it's, there's still too many who die, but it's, it's in the tens of thousands, uh, low tens of thousands or less. Um, it's a huge success story. And um, it's due to um, science, technology, and things like meteorology, weather forecasting, evacuation, uh, and so on. So if you have a trend from millions to tens of thousands, sharp trend downward, it's very difficult to say, well, deaths are increasing due to climate change. Um, now, going forward, our, our progress on reducing vulnerability and, and, and the good news on disasters may not continue. That's, there's no guarantee of that. Um, but we do know as a global society how to reduce vulnerabilities to, to weather extremes. 
so we've adapted. I, I think I read somewhere that uh, as recently as 100 years ago, uh, the average Earthling member of planet Earth had one in 1,000 chance of, of dying from a weather event. And now, uh, given the population uh, and the risk, we're at one in 400,000 um, uh, risk of dying from a weather event. As you say, it's a reduction of 99.75%. That's substantial. But what would you say to critics saying uh, that, sure, we've adapted, we've been able to um, anticipate hurricanes and move inland, uh, but we're uh, at the precipice of an inflection point that suddenly weather will uh, will become much more extreme. Uh, we, we, this is the calm before the storm uh, to, to torture a um, cliche. Uh, what would you say to that? Yeah, and I mean, this is where we go back from the the the, the very um, hot public debate um, and, and the, some of the imagery you see in the media and what politicians may say. Let's go back to the IPCC and see what that projects um, in in coming decades uh, for for changes in extremes. And yes, there are some some projected changes. Uh, most notably, heat waves are expected to increase, become more severe in many places around the world. Um, but on the other hand, take a phenomenon like drought or tropical cyclones, hurricanes. Um, it will be very difficult to even detect those changes for many, many decades. So the idea that we're on a precipice or we're on a, uh, the edge of the apocalypse uh, just doesn't stand up when you, co you know, compare that to the science. Um, but what, you know, when I engage people in this topic, um, if they want to believe that, that you know, that's fine. It's not my job to convince them uh, that they're wrong. Um, but what that should should lead to is an agreement among everyone that, yes, we have to keep investing in adaptation, in vulnerability reduction. We have to be better prepared for an uncertain future. So I, I don't think the policy choices we would make are particularly sensitive to whether one has an optimistic or pessimistic view of the future. Um, we just have to keep doing those things that we know have worked um, to reduce vulnerabilities to, to extremes. You break down um, extreme weather in your most recent book. I found it interesting and surprising, frankly. Um, uh, in there, you break down which weather events uh, affect human beings uh, or, or kill human beings uh, and talk about the trends, whether they're going up or downward. Um, affect, uh, I, I simply just assumed that uh, events like hurricanes and tropical cyclones were becoming more numerous. Uh, you know, just seems to be that way. That's the narrative. What is your data? Uh, let's just briefly break it down by phenomenon. What's going up and what's going down? You mentioned uh, heat waves. That's going up. Um, but what's what's uh, what's everything else doing? Yeah, and 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 this is a, you know a timely question because the IPCC just released its sixth assessment report. Um, you know, a month ago or so, um, which went through phenomena by phenomena. Um, trends in extreme weather phenomena uh, around the world. And um, as you say, heat waves have increased. Uh, what's called extreme precipitation, and we have to be careful with that because extreme precipitation is a scientific term. Um, that has increased in, in many places around the world. The IPCC is very careful to say extreme precipitation does not necessarily mean that flooding has increased. Um, and that may be counterintuitive at first, but then you realize well, you know, here, here in Boulder, Colorado, if we got an inch of rain today, that would be pretty extreme um, in the fall. Um, it can happen, but it wouldn't lead to floods. Um, and so that's why the IPCC says with respect to flooding, um, there hasn't been an overall global increase. Um, with respect to tropical cyclones, there has not been an overall uh, increase in the intensity or frequency of storms on a, on a century timescale. Um, that comes as a surprise to many people. Um, the IPCC breaks down drought into several technical categories, um, but the types of drought that most people are aware of are what's called meteorological 
um, or hydrological drought. Um, and they find one's rainfall and, and one's uh, surface flows of water. And they find that there are no trends globally in that type of drought. They do find there is a, a trend in what's called uh, ecological or agricultural drought, which refers to soil moisture. Um, but then we get into phenomena like hurricanes, tornadoes, straight line winds, uh, winter storms. Um, and, and there is, is, number one, there's not great data everywhere around the world, but the IPCC has not detected upwards trends in, in any of those phenomena. So, so when, you, when you paint the whole picture, and it's really important to go phenomena by phenomena because extreme weather is, is, is a big bin with a lot of different uh, climatological phenomena. But when you go there, you, you find that the headline events that we often see in the newspaper, uh, particularly floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, um, there's not uh, strong evidence of upward trends uh, over climate timescales. So if there's no measurable trend, uh, attribution of, is uh, impossible because you can't attribute something to nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, the IPCC is, is quite explicit when it comes to attributing long-term, you know, multi-decade trends. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the increase in the global surface temperature um, has been detected and attributed to human-caused climate change, but you can't say the same for, for many extreme weather events. That's not, that's not at all surprising. Um, extreme weather events, by definition, are rare, and so the statistics of, of rare events are such that it takes a long time to detect changes. Um, so, so really, things are unfolding much as the IPCC has projected, um, and if you actually do the math for something like tropical cyclones, we wouldn't expect to be able to detect those changes till late in the century, if then, um, even under some of the more aggressive scenarios of climate change. So I want to go back to the IPCC, uh, the, um, the different scenarios. Uh, I think they're called representative concentration pathways, RCPs, and there are different probabilities of different scenarios. You said the most extreme is, is very unlikely, uh, largely based on the fact that um, it was deliberately designed to be worst case scenario where every, everybody burns all the coal possible on planet Earth. Very, very unlikely, but necessary perhaps from a scientific argument perspective. Um, and yet, as unlikely as that scenario is, it seems that in many times uh, that scenario is brought up as sort of the uh, uh, core prediction. Um, uh, you've observed that that's the, or the IPCC has observed that that's very, very unlikely and that a, far, a different path is more likely. Why do you think policymakers anchor on worst case scenarios that by vir virtually all standards are uh, highly unlikely or uh, virtually impossible? Yeah, this, I mean, this is, there's, a, there's a fascinating story here that, that gets into things like the sociology of science and communication and so on. But the, at, early on, when, when the climate community said, all right, we need scenarios um, of the future to, to, to drive our climate models, um, what they said was, well, let's have, let's have a low one that has a very low greenhouse gas emissions in the future. Let's have a high one with really high ones uh, emissions. And then let's have a couple in the middle. That was it. There was no consideration of worst case, of likelihood, of plausibility. Um, these were scenarios that were chosen to, uh, to help support climate research, which is really important, really legitimate, um, completely justifiable. Um, but when those four scenarios were, were put into the research com community and eventually into published papers, going through university press offices, press releases, media coverage, then finding their way into policymakers' discussions and advocacy. Um, in that process, the most extreme of those four scenarios became represented as the most likely path that we're on. 
um, called business as usual. Um, there's a lot of reasons for why that happened, um, but th that is a core, um, I would say a core shortfall in how scenarios are used by the IPCC because no one in that process has responsibility for evaluating the plausibility or likelihood of any of these scenarios. Um, and so as research has gone on over subsequent um, 10 or 15 years, it's been, been discovered that this most um, extreme scenario of the set is highly implausible. And, and in fact, our, some of our research suggests that it's already falsified, that, that, that the world is so far from it in 2021 that it's not at all appropriate as a guide to the future. Um, so this sets up a very challenging situation for climate research and, and advocacy because much of the discussion that we have about the long-term future is grounded in a vision of futures that just aren't possible. Um, and so that makes it really, really difficult, I think, to um, have a, a science-grounded discussion of, of the climate issue because it's been um, off track for a while now. So um, I want to dig deep, more deeply into why using the wrong scenario is so harmful or potentially harmful. But let's talk about why it's implausible. What has changed uh, in, in recent years? Uh, regard, let's start at the basics. Uh, CO2 or, or fossil fuels burning uh, create greenhouse gases, and those uh, have some correlation um, with rising temperatures, and we're, we're going to attribute some, so we're going to say it's causation. Um, but much of the world has changed their uh, energy sources in the U.S., uh, We've actually backed uh, away from coal uh, in in in, uh, in a different direction. Uh, I, I've read some of your work, which says we're at we're already past our peak uh, CO two output, uh, as is uh, you know, much of the world is approaching this. Is this largely why uh, you're more let's say sanguine than the um, the most extreme predictions? Uh, are we trending either um, in a better direction or or in fact downward? Yeah. So I mean, if if One's vision of the long-term future is that greenhouse gas emissions are just going up, 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 up. It makes the, the, the magnitude of the challenge of reducing them, which is already huge enough, it makes it look bigger than it actually is. And it can create a sense of helplessness. Um, and you know, there's studies out there now that say that, that youth are uh, paralyzed by fear of the future. Um, to say that the future is not apocalyptic um, doesn't mean that it's perfect and everything we can go about our business and forget about climate change. Um, I'm, I'm a policy scholar. And what I teach my students is that if you want to solve a really difficult, complicated problem, the first thing you have to do is characterize the size of that problem accurately. Um, and so I, I do think it's highly problematic if we have misleading scenarios for the future um, guiding our policy responses. Now, the counter argument to that is, uh, well, yeah, maybe they're wrong. But if they scare people and they motivate them, that might help the politics of climate change. Um, and then this gets into issues related to the ethics of science and science communication. Um, I'm, I'm a stickler for being accurate about the science and having policy justifications that, that, that are well-grounded in, in, in science. Um, the reason for that is we want science to be perceived to be legitimate and not just today, but for the next 20 years, 50 years. And if scientists are perceived as exaggerating threats, um, that can't be good for for uh, policy or politics. So uh, those who would perceive it as a, a noble lie to uh, to exaggerate the threat um, would say it is indeed noble lie because uh, that's what we need to do to shake uh, the ordinary citizen out of complacency and address this issue. They they justify the exaggeration by saying the ends justify the means. Yeah, we see that a lot, and I mean that's often how politics works. And and you know I, I'm not of any illusion that 
that we experts can can shape how politicians behave. But what we do have control of is how we behave in the scientific community. And and by uh, avoiding the noble lie or trying to campaign based on research we know is dated or or flawed, um, we can help uh, keep the the integrity of science uh, solid going forward. And honestly, the science of climate change is robust enough. The futures are scary enough by being accurate that we don't have to exaggerate. We don't need to. And so I see it as a, as an entirely unnecessary um, debate. And you know the, what we should be doing in the in the expert community is just updating and fixing the scenarios and moving on. And and why we have this debate and why people defend bad science is um, is 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 interesting and it's story in itself. Indeed, we, we both asserted, or you have scientifically asserted that um, uh, global temperatures are rising. It's largely attributable to uh, greenhouse <laughs> gases. So lest we be uh, labeled either of us as uh, climate deniers, uh, let, let's let's uh, establish that we both certainly accept that uh, that trend. Um, so, what are the solutions that uh, you've explored, or that the science, or the, the general the climate science community? Uh, we often talk about renewables, wind, and solar. Uh, to my reading, these are challenging in their own right. There's the uh, physics of the of the thing. They, uh, you know, the wind doesn't always blow, and certainly we know the sun doesn't shine even there in Boulder uh, all the time. Um, is this our way out of this challenge? Yeah. Well, first, it's always sunny in Boulder. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so at a very simple level, the answer is yes. And, and then you, you start getting into some of the complexities and the answer is no, it's a lot more complicated than that. But the mathematics are, are really straightforward, that if we're going to stop the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, our emissions um, of greenhouse gases in total, but in particular carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels have to go to zero. Um, and we may want them to go below zero in the sense that we start taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The only way that we get emissions to go to zero is we replace oil, natural gas, and coal with alternative energy sources. Um, and I, in my book, The Climate Fix, I, I call for a stance of, of technological agnosticism. Um, it, once you get into energy technology discussions, you'll find that every energy technology has a constituency. And they think that their technology is the solution, whether it's wind or solar or nuclear or geothermal or carbon capture, or whatever it happens to be. And I'm very much of the view that the more carbon-free or low-carbon technologies we have on the table, the greater our chances for success. And in fact, as we're learning with the energy crisis um, in the UK and in Europe, um, a diversity of supply um, is a good thing, and not just for climate reasons, but for reliability reasons, for cost reasons, for geopolitics. Um, so, so when I see... Um, the debate on climate change getting wrapped up in the debate over closing nuclear power plants, for example. Um, I think that's that's a bit frustrating because nuclear is um, a, a, a good solid option to have on the table, not uniquely, but alongside with renewables and, and other technologies. When you do the math, um, you realize that an energy transformation um, of the global energy system, it's not something that you accomplish in a year in a decade, even in a couple decades. This is a challenge of a century. Um, and getting to net zero CO2 um, will be a policy focus you know, throughout the 21st century. It, it's not a, a quick turnaround sort of issue. I am quite optimistic though, that because it's a technological challenge, um, humanity's up for it. Um, you, you mentioned uh, every energy source has its constituency. Uh, maybe I might put myself in the nuclear camp. I'm, I'm perplexed that, uh, 
particularly among those people who are uh, apocalyptic and about the future and, and see an ex existential uh, threat to humanity and to Earth. Uh, clearly, uh, nuclear has virtually infinite uh, power uh, uh, potential and zero uh, CO2 emission. Why would the environmental community, maybe I'm, this is not a fair statement, but why do they seem to be um, so reticent to uh, adapt nuclear with, uh, with both arms? Yeah, I mean, there's a long history of um, concerns about nuclear power that goes back to, to you know, really, you know, my parents' generation and folks from the 1960s with nuclear energy getting wrapped up with concerns about war and weapons. Um, of course, you know, it's Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. Um, and every energy, every energy technology has risks. Um, nuclear's risks are, are, are what are called dread risks um, because radiation and meltdowns are, are really scary. Um, but when you burn fossil fuels, you put particulate air pollution into the atmosphere, and that creates risks of uh, premature death um, from bad air quality. Um, it's not as dreadful as a nuclear power plant. So there's a lot of reasons. Um, I, what I tell people and environmentalists um, and my students is it's perfectly legitimate to conclude that you're more afraid of nuclear power than you are of climate change or vice versa. Just realize that when you take nuclear off the table, you have then made the challenge that much bigger to, um, to decarbonize the global energy system. But let me say, I, I think that, that the debates over nuclear power have, have taken a turn. Um, just this week, China has announced they're gonna build a, 150 new nuclear power plants. Um, there's a lot of research going into what's called advanced nuclear energy. So I do think um, that we will see, um, you know, in my children's generation and their children's generation, uh, a recommitment to nuclear because it, it just offers such a massive amount of clean energy that you can't get presently from anywhere else. Um, and it's complementary to renewables like solar and wind. Yes, and here in Boston, across the river in Cambridge, you're working on uh, actually the potential of uh, nuclear fusion, which would actually not have any uh, uh, waste. So uh, who knows what the future brings. It's very exciting. Um, we're getting close to our end of our time together. I, I want to talk about, of course, we're talking about energy production and, and alternatives to energy production, but there are other ways we could um, address CO2 in the atmosphere, one of which is uh, perhaps taking it out with some sort of carbon sequestration. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much conversation about that. That seems like an, an exciting technological uh, alternative. And even again, uh, these, these topics are considered taboo. Um, uh, ge uh, geoengineering, that is to perhaps make the Earth a little less uh, absorbent of, of sunlight and reflect a little more back into space. We do have some ideas on that. Um, why are we not going uh, towards running towards these uh, ideas? You know, we're a, we're a, a curious species that likes to solve problems. Why why are we running headlong into those kinds of alternatives? Yeah, the, the technologies of of, of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere or taking it out the top of a smokestack in a fossil fuel power plant. These technologies are, are fundamental to the scenarios of the, the IPCC. So when you look to the future, there's a big bet that these scenarios are going to pan out. And you're exactly right that the, the amount of attention and research funding that's paid to them um, is, is a lot less than the role that they're expected to play in the future. That's going to have to turn around. Um, I'm a big supporter of investments um, in innovation all along from the, you know, the basic research to the deployment and, and bringing to market um, because it's through technology that will address this, this issue. Um, so that's going to have to change. And, and who knows whether fusion or carbon capture technologies will pan out, but we can be sure they won't pan out if we don't invest in them. Geoengineering, I think, is a whole different 
whole whole different uh, category of, of issues. Um, that involves not mitigating climate change, but trying to compensate for it um, by you know, putting particulates up in the high um, atmosphere, um, by, by seeding the ocean or changing the albedo of the earth in some ways by, by brightening clouds. Um, from where I sit, and you know, I wrote a, a chapter on this in my book, it's just a bad idea because if we're worried about climate change due to human influences, do we really just want to add another layer of human influence on the climate system rather than removing that influence? Um, we're not really good at anticipating the, the current consequences of climate change. Um, do we think that if we try to intentionally modulate the earth, it's going to work out great for everyone? So, so it's, it's kind of a Dr. Strangelove sort of, sort of path forward. Um, and it, for me, it's, it's, it's just not the, um, the smartest move, given that um, we've already made progress, as you've said, um, you know, reducing coal use in many places around the world, not everywhere. Um, and, and we do have uh, some optimism that we can continue decarbonizing the energy system. Now, you and I were not invited to Glasgow this week, um, uh, and uh, but let's say you were, and you were the head speaker, and uh, you had uh, the 30,000 or so uh, people sitting in front of you, uh, listening intently to your recommendations. If you had that speech and you were to speak to uh, those leaders, what would you want to see as the, let's say, low-hanging fruit? What could we do that would be the most impactful and perhaps, if you can, um, uh, most politically feasible, uh, again, considering the globe, not just what we do in the U.S., but uh, globally for nearly 8 billion people. Yeah, one of the, one of the secrets of the, the, the framework convention process and COP26 in Glasgow is that the, the simple act of having the meeting is a success. Um, it's not what people say or decide there. Obviously, global governance is very difficult. It's not binding. But the Paris Agreement creates an expectation that countries will act domestically, bring those commitments uh, to a meeting like Glasgow, show them to the world, um, and there's a shared commitment to action. So what really matters under the, the, the framework convention process is what happens in individual countries. So holding the US government accountable to its commitments um, is really important. Holding China, uh, to, uh, accountable to their commitments, really important. India came out uh, just this week with a commitment to net zero by 2070, which uh, some people have criticized because it's not 2050, but at the same time, India has a lot of poor people and is, uh, uses very little energy compared to everyone else. It's a remarkable accomplishment. Um, and so ensuring mechanisms of accountability to commitments um, is the key to keeping political pressure on this topic. Um, the other thing I will say is, None of this is possible unless there's a sustained and significant investment around the world in energy technologies. Um, we don't have all the technologies we need presently, um, and we're going to have to invest much more in energy, similar to like what we do on defense, say, um, where the, the world invests you know, trillions of dollars in, in national defense. Um, energy is just as important, and we're going to have to realize that it's not just something that the market takes care of. Um, indeed, it, it, I, 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 I like what you had to say there. Um, in fact, I like what you've uh, written in, in many different forms. Where do you go for your information? Which scientists, I, you can't do all the primary research yourself. Which organizations do you find most trustworthy? Uh, and where perhaps, again, I'm, I'm leading our listeners, where would they want to go um, to find, let's say, uh, separate the, the signal from the noise? Yeah, I mean, the climate space is, is, is enormously 
uh, flush with opinions and views and so on. Um, you know, at, at, at the core, the IPCC is um, is held up as the, the consensus view on science impacts economics. But again, you have to realize that the IPCC is not, you know, a, a stone tablets brought down from the mountain and it, it can be criticized and, and improved. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to, to give a, a laundry list of groups. Um, it's really, really difficult, I think, on climate, like many other global issues um, for people to rapidly get up to speed on the on the topic. Um, so I would say, um, you know, pay attention, um, but be, be uh, critical of the people on the most extreme sides of the debate. People who say, oh, it's, don't worry about it, it's not a problem. Or people say it's the apocalypse, the world ends in 2030. Um, there, is, there is better knowledge out there, but um, how best to get it, um, maybe that's something we can work on. It's, it's, it's really, really hard. Well, I find you to be a wonderful steward in this space. I, I, uh, you, you, you point me in the right direction to, 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 to do a deeper dive if I like it. So I, I really appreciate the work you're doing, uh, whether it be Twitter or Substack, uh, very, very useful. So before we end our conversation, I'd like to have uh, you uh, uh, share with our listeners, how can they find you? How can uh, they find your books uh, and learn more about you and keep up with uh, your, your finding in the future? Yeah, thanks, Joan. Let me just say I appreciate the opportunity to talk about some of our work. I'm I'm readily findable. I'm a, one of those academics who's who's very public. I'm on Twitter um, at Roger Pelkey Jr. P I E L K E. Um, I did a book about a decade ago called The Climate Fix, which has stood up pretty well on these issues. Um, and people are welcome to email me. They can find me on my campus, you know, Colorado.edu. And if they have questions or or feedback, I I, I love to hear from from people who uh, take these issues seriously. Wonderful. Well, that's a great way to end our show. I appreciate your time, Professor Pilkey. This is wonderful. I hope our listeners uh, learned uh, quite a bit from uh, from you today. Uh, and thanks for taking time uh, out of your uh, sunny morning in, uh, in uh, Colorado. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Hubwalk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you want to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would help if you would offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. It also helps if you share us with friends and family. If you have ideas for me or suggestions or comments about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.